0: Of course, it was nothing more than an ordinary stick, but Martin needed to be reassured as to that point. It's like Tecum said, nothing in the world is harder than convincing someone of an unfamiliar truth. Martin showed us how to see when leaves or needles had been disturbed, how to spot when stones had been walked across, how to tell if moss or lichen had been damaged by someone's passing. The old huntsman was a surprisingly good teacher. He didn't belabor his points, didn't talk down to us, and didn't mind questions. Even Tempe's trouble with the language didn't frustrate him. Even so, it took hours, a full half day. Then, when I thought we were finally finished, Martin turned us around and started leading us back toward the camp. We've already been that way, I said. If we're going to practice, let's practice in the right direction. Martin ignored me and kept walking. Tell me what you see. Twenty paces later, Tempe pointed. Moss, he said. My foot. I've walked. Realization dawned, and I began to see all the marks Tempe and I had made. For the next three hours, Martin walked a step by humiliating step back through the trees, showing us everything we had done to betray our presence there. A scuff against the lichen on a tree trunk. A piece of freshly broken rock the discoloration of overturned pine needles. Worst of all were a half dozen bright green leaves that lay shredded on the ground in a tiny semicircle. Martin raised an eyebrow and I blushed. I had plucked them from a nearby bush, idly shredding them while listening to Martin. Think twice and step carefully, Martin said. And keep an eye on each other. He looked back and forth between Tempe and me we're playing a dangerous game here. Then Martin showed us how to cover our tracks. It quickly became clear that a poorly concealed sign was often more obvious than one simply left alone. So over the next two hours, we learned how to hide our mistakes and spot mistakes that others had tried to hide. Only then, as afternoon was turning to evening, did Tempe and I begin searching this swath of forest bigger than most baronies. We walked close together, zigzagging back and forth, looking for any sign of the bandit's trail. I thought about the long days stretching out ahead of us. I'd thought searching the archives had been tedious. But looking for a broken twig in this much forest made hunting for the gram seem like going to the baker for a bun. In the archives, I had the chance to make accidental discoveries. In the archives, I'd had my friends—conversation, jokes, affection— Looking sideways at Tempe, I realized I could count the words he had said today—twenty-four—and the number of times he had met my eye—three. How long would this take? Ten days? Twenty? Merciful Talu! Could I spend a month out here without going mad? With thoughts like this, when I saw some bark chipped off a tree and a tuft of grass bent the wrong way, I was flooded with relief. Not wanting to get my hopes up, I motioned to Tempe. Do you see anything here? He nodded, fidgeting with the collar of his shirt, then pointed to the grass I'd spotted. Then he pointed to a scuffed bit of exposed root I hadn't noticed. Almost light-headed with excitement, I pulled out the oak twig and signaled Martin. I twitched it very gently, not wanting to send him into another panic. It was only two minutes before Martin came out of the trees, but in that time I had already formed three plans as to how to track and kill the bandits, composed five apologetic soliloquies to Denna, and decided that when I got back to Severin, I would donate money to the Talin Church as thanks for this tangible miracle. I expected Martin to be irritated that we'd called him back so soon, but his expression was purely matter-of-fact as he came to stand next to us. I pointed out the grass, the bark, and the root. Tempe spotted the last— I said, giving credit where credit is due. Good, he said seriously. Good job. There's also a bent branch over there. He gestured a few paces off to the right. I turned to face the direction the trail seemed to indicate. Odds are they're going to be north of here, I said, farther from the road. Do you think it would be better to scout things out a bit now or wait until tomorrow when we're fresh? Martin squinted at me. Good lord, boy. These aren't real trail signs. So obvious. All so close together. He gave me a long look. I left them. I needed to make sure you weren't going to glaze over after a few minutes of looking. My elation fell from some place in my chest and landed around my feet, shattering like a glass jar tipped from a high shelf. My expression must have been pitiful as Martin gave me an apologetic smile. "'I'm sorry. I should have told you. I'll be doing it off and on every day. It's the only chance we have to stay alert. This isn't my first time hunting through haystacks, you know.' The third time we called Martin back, he suggested we make a standing wager— Tempy and I would win a halfpenny for every sign we found, and he'd win a silver bit for every one we missed. I jumped at the offer, not only would it help keep us on our toes, but five to one odds seemed rather generous. This made the rest of the day pass quickly. Tempy and I missed a few signs: a log shifted out of place, some scattered leaves, and a broken spider web. I thought this last one was a bit unfair, but even so. By the time we headed back to camp that evening, Tempe and I were two pennies ahead. Over supper, Martin told a story about a young widow's son who left home to make his fortune. A tinker sold him a pair of magic boots that helped him rescue a princess from a tower high in the mountains. Daydan nodded along while he ate, smiling as if he'd heard it before. Hespa laughed in places, gasped in others, the perfect audience. Tempe sat perfectly still with his hands folded in his lap, showing none of the nervous restlessness I'd come to expect from him. He stayed that way through the entire story, listening while his dinner grew cold. The story was a good one. There was a hungry giant and a riddle game, but the widow's son was clever, and in the end he brought the princess back and married her. It was a familiar story, and listening to it reminded me of days long gone, back when I had a home. A family. Chapter 80 Tone The next day Martin left with Hespa and Daydan while Tempe and I remained behind to keep an eye on the camp. With nothing else to occupy my time, I started gathering extra firewood. Then I searched for useful herbs in the undergrowth and brought water from the nearby spring. Then I busied myself by unpacking, sorting, and rearranging everything in my travel sack. Tempe disassembled his sword, meticulously cleaning and oiling all the pieces. He didn't look bored, but then again, he never looked like anything. By midday, I was nearly mad with boredom. I would have read, but I hadn't brought a book. I would have sewn pockets into my threadbare cloak, but I didn't have any spare cloth. I would have played my lute— but a trooper's lute is designed to carry music through a noisy taproom. Out here, the sound of it could carry for miles. I would have chatted with Tempe, but trying to have a conversation with him was like playing catch with a well. Still, it seemed to be my only option. I walked over to where Tempe sat. He had finished cleaning his sword and was making small adjustments to the leather grip. Tempe? Tempe lay aside his sword and came to his feet. He stood uncomfortably close to me, with barely more than eight inches of space between us. Then he hesitated and frowned. It wasn't much of a frown, barely a thinning of the lips and a slight line between his eyebrows, but on Tempe's blank sheet of a face it stood out like a word written in red ink. He backed away from me by two good paces, then eyed the ground between us and stepped forward slightly understanding dawned on me. Tempe, how close do Adem stand? Tempe looked at me blankly for a second, then burst out laughing. A shy smile flickered onto his face, making him look very young. It left his mouth quickly, but lingered around his eyes. Smart. Yes. Different in Adem. For you, close. He stepped uncomfortably close then backed away. For me? I asked. Is it different for different people? He nodded. Yes. How close for Daydan? He fidgeted. Complicated. I felt a familiar curiosity flicker up inside me. Tempe, I asked. Would you teach me these things? Teach me your language? Yes he said, and though his face betrayed none of it, I could hear a great weight of relief in his voice. Yes, please, yes. By the end of the afternoon, I had learned a wild, useless scattering of ademic words. The grammar was still a mystery, but that is how it always begins. Luckily, languages are like musical instruments. The more you know, the easier it is to pick up new ones." Ademic was my fourth. Our major problem was that Tempe's A Turin was not very good, which gave us little common ground, so we drew in the dirt, pointed, and waved our hands quite a bit. Several times, when mere gestures were not enough, we ended up performing something close to pantomime or little mummer's plays in order to get our meaning across. It was more entertaining than I had expected. There was one stumbling block the first day. I had learned a dozen words and thought of another that would be useful. I made a fist and pretended to throw a punch at Tempe. Freyat, he said. Freyat, I repeated. He shook his head. No. Freyat. Freyat, I said carefully. No, he said firmly. Freyat is. He bared his teeth and worked his jaw as if he were biting something. Freyat. He punched his fist into his palm. Freyat, I said. No. I was amazed at the weight of condescension in his voice. Freyat. My face got hot. That's what I'm saying. Freyat, Freyat, Frey Tempe reached out and smacked me in the side of the head with the flat of his hand. It was the same way he had struck Dedan last night, the way my father had cuffed me when I was being troublesome in public. It wasn't hard enough to hurt. It was just startling. No one had done that to me in years. Even more startling was that I hardly saw it. The motion was smooth and lazy and faster than snapping your fingers. He didn't seem to mean anything insulting by it. He was merely getting my attention. He lifted his sandy hair and pointed to his ear. Here, he said firmly. Friyat. He bared his teeth again, making a biting motion. Friyat, raised fist. Friyat. Friyat. Friat. Friat. And I did hear it. It wasn't the sound of the word itself, it was the cadence of the word. Free yacht, I said. He favored me with a small, rare smile. Yes. Good. Then I had to go back and relearn all the words, making note of their rhythm. I hadn't really heard it before, just mimicked it. Slowly, I discovered each word could have several different meanings depending on cadence of the sound that composed them. I learned the all-important phrases, what does that mean, and explain that more slowly, in addition to a couple dozen words, fight, look, sword, hand, dance. The dumb show I had to perform to get him to understand the last of these left both of us laughing. It was fascinating. The different cadences of each word meant the language itself had a sort of music to it. I couldn't help but wonder. Tempe... I asked, what are your songs like? He looked at me blankly for a moment, and I thought he might not understand the abstract question. Could you sing me an Adem song? But the song, he asked. In the last hour, Tempe had learned twice as many words as I had. I cleared my throat and sang, Little Jenny No-Shoes when a-walking with the wind. She was looking for a bonny boy to laugh and make her grin. Upon her head a feather cap, upon her lips a whistle. Her lips were wet and honey-sweet, her tongue was sharp as thistle. Tempe's eyes went wide as I sang. He practically gaped. You? I prompted, pointing to his chest. Can you sing an eight M song? His face blushed a burning red, and a dozen emotions ran wild and undisguised over his face. Astonishment, horror, embarrassment, shock, disgust. He got to his feet, turning away and chattering something in demic far too quickly for me to follow. He looked for all the world as if I just asked him to strip naked and dance for me. No, he said, managing to collect himself somewhat. His face was composed again. But his fair skin was still flushed a violent red. No. Looking down at the ground, he touched his chest, shaking his head. No song. No Adam song. I got to my feet as well, not knowing what I'd done wrong. Tempe, I'm sorry. Tempe shook his head. No. Nothing sorry. He drew a deep breath and shook his head as he turned and started to walk away. Complicated. Chapter 81 The Jealous Moon That evening, Martin shot a trio of fat rabbits. I dug roots and picked a few herbs, and before the sun was down, the five of us sat down to a meal made perfect by the addition of two large loaves of fresh bread, butter, and a crumbly cheese too local to have any specific name. Spirits were high after a day of good weather, and so with dinner came more stories. Hespa told a surprisingly romantic tale of a queen who loved a serving boy. She told her story with a gentle passion, and if her telling didn't show a tender heart, the look she gave Daden as she spoke of the queen's love did. Dayden, however, failed to see the marks of love on her. And, with a folly I have rarely seen equaled, he began to tell a story he'd heard at the Penniesworth Inn, a tale of Philurian. "'The boy who told me this was hardly as old as Quoth here,' Daydan said. "'And if you'd heard him talk, you'd have seen he wasn't the sort who could invent such a tale.' The mercenary tapped his temple meaningfully. "'But listen, and judge for yourself if it's worth believing.' As I've said, Daydan had a good tongue in his head and a sharper wit than you'd guess when he decided to use it. Unfortunately, this was one of the times that the former was working and the latter was not. For time out of mind, men have been wary of this stretch of woods, not for fear of lawless men or becoming lost. He shook his head. No, they say the fair folk make their homes here cloven-hoofed pucks that dance when the moon is full, dark things with long fingers that steal babes from cribs. Many's the woman, old wife or new, who leaves out bread and milk at night, and many's the man who makes well sure he builds his house with all his doors in a row. Some might call these folks superstitious, but they know the truth. The safest thing is to avoid the fay, but barring that, You want to keep in their good graces. This is a story of Felurian, Lady of Twilight, Lady of the First Quiet, Felurian who is deaf to men, but a glad deaf, and one they go to willingly. Tempe drew a breath. It was a small motion, but it was eye-catching as he'd continued his habit of sitting perfectly still through the evening's stories. Now this made better sense to me. He was being quiet. Felurian? Tempe asked. Death to man. She is. He paused. She is. Sentin? He lifted his hands in front of himself and made a sort of gripping gesture. He eyed us expectantly. Then, seeing we didn't understand, he touched his sword where it lay at his side. I understood. No, I said. She's not one of the Adem. Tempe shook his head and pointed at Martin's bow. I shook my head. No, she's not a fighter at all. She... I trailed off, unable to think of how I would explain how Felurian killed men, especially if we were forced to resort to gestures. Desperate, I looked to Daydan for help. Daydan didn't hesitate. Sex, he said frankly. Do you know sex? Tempy blinked, then threw back his head and laughed. Daydan looked as if he were trying to decide whether or not to be offended. After a moment, Tempy caught his breath. Yes, he said simply. Yes, I know sex. Daydan smiled. That's how she kills men. For a moment, Tempy looked more blank than usual. Then a slow horror spread across his face. No, not horror. It was raw disgust and revulsion, made all the worse by the fact that his face was usually so blank. His hand clenched into several unfamiliar gestures at his side. Ow! He choked out the word. Daydan started to say something, then stopped. Then he started to make a gesture and stopped that as well, looking self-consciously at Hespa. Hespa chuckled low in her throat and turned to Tempe. She thought for a moment, then made a gesture as if holding someone in her arms, kissing them. Then she began to tap her chest rhythmically, mimicking a heartbeat. She beat faster and faster, then stopped, clenching her hand into a fist and making her eyes wide. She tensed her whole body, then went limp, lolling her head to one side. Dayden laughed and clapped at her performance. That's it, but sometimes- He tapped his temple, then snapped his fingers, crossing his eyes and sticking out his tongue. Crazy. Tempe relaxed. Oh, he said, plainly relieved. Good, yes. Daidan nodded and settled back into his story. Right. Felurian. Fondest desire of all men. Beauty beyond compare. For Tempe's benefit- He made a gesture as if he were brushing out long hair. Twenty years ago, this boy's father and uncle were out hunting in this very stretch of forest as the sun began to set. They stayed out later than they should, then decided to make their way home by cutting straight through the forest instead of using the road like sensible folk. They hadn't been walking very long when they heard singing in the distance. They made their way toward it, thinking they were close to the road, but instead... They found themselves at the edge of a small clearing, and there stood Filorian singing softly to herself Celani and Luhiel Dumari Filanua Criata to Sier to Alaran Diderella Amawan Losi, Andalan to Niavorulan Filurian Thay. Though Dedan made rough work of the tune, I shivered at the sound of it. The melody was eerie, Compelling and utterly unfamiliar, I didn't recognize the language either. Not a bit of it. Daydan nodded as he saw my reaction. More than anything, that song gives the boy's story the ring of truth. I can't put a bit of sense to those words, but they stuck right in my head, even though he only sang it once. So the two brothers are huddled at the edge of the clearing, and thanks to the moon, they could see like it was noon instead of night. She won't wearin' a stitch, and though her hair was almost to her waist, it were real obvious she was as naked as the moon. I have always enjoyed stories about Felurian, but as I glanced at Hesper, my anticipation cooled. She was watching Daydan, and as he spoke, her eyes narrowed. Daidan failed to see this. She was tall with long, graceful legs. Her waist was slender. Her hips curved as if begging for the touch of a hand. Her stomach was perfect and smooth like a flawless piece of birch bark, and the dimple of her navel seemed made for kissing. Hesper's eyes were dangerous slits by this point, but even more telling was her mouth, which had formed a thin, straight line. A word of advice to you. Should you ever see that look on a woman's face, leave off talking at once and sit on both your hands. It may not mend matters, but it will at least keep you from making them any worse. Unfortunately, Daydan continued, his thick hands gesturing in the firelight. Her breasts were full and round, like peaches waiting to be taken from the tree. Even the jealous moon, which steals the color from all things, couldn't hide the rosy- Hespa made a disgusted noise and pushed herself to her feet. I'll just leave, then she said. Her voice held such a chill even Day-Dan couldn't miss it. What? He looked up to her, still holding his hands in front of himself, frozen in the act of cupping an imagined pair of breasts. She stormed away, muttering under her breath. Day-Dan let his hands drop heavily into his lap. His expression moved from confused to injured to angry in the space of a breath. After a second, he got to his feet, roughly brushing bits of leaf and twig from his pants and muttering to himself. Gathering up his blankets, he started toward the other side of our little clearing. "'Did it end with both brothers chasing after her and the boy's father falling behind?' I asked. Dadan looked back at me. "'You've already heard it, then. You could have stopped me if you didn't—' "'I'm just guessing,' I said quickly. "'I hate not hearing the ending of a story—' "'Father put his foot in a rabbit hole,' Dadan said shortly. "'Sprained his ankle. Nobody saw the uncle again.' He stalked out of the circle of firelight, his expression grim. I cast an imploring look at Martin, who shook his head. "'No,' he said softly. "'I won't have any part of it. Not for the world. Trying to help right now would be like trying to put out a fire with my hands. Painful.' and with no real results. Tempe began to make up his bed. Martin made a circular gesture with one finger and gave me a questioning look, asking if I wanted the first watch. I nodded, and he gathered up his bedroll, saying, Attractive as some things are, you have to weigh your risks. How badly do you want it? How badly are you willing to be burned? I spread the fire, and soon the deep dark of night settled into the clearing. I lay on my back, looked at the stars, and thought of Denna. Chapter 82 Barbarians The next day Tempe and I moved camp while Daden and Hespa walked back to Crossan for supplies. Martin scouted out an isolated piece of flat ground close to water. Then we packed and moved everything, dug the privy, built the fire pit, and generally got everything settled. Tempe was willing to talk as we worked, but I was nervous. I had offended him by asking about the Lethani early on, so I knew to avoid that subject. But if he was upset by a simple question about singing, how could I begin to guess what might offend him? Again, his blank expression and refusal to make eye contact were the main problems. How could I make intelligent conversation with a person when I had no idea how he felt? It was like trying to walk blindfolded through an unfamiliar house. So I took the safer road and simply asked for more words as we worked. Objects, for the most part, as we were both too busy with our hands to pantomime. Best of all, Tempe got to practice his atorin while I built up my ademic vocabulary. I noticed the more mistakes I made in his language, the more comfortable he grew in his own attempts at expressing himself. This meant, of course, that I made many mistakes. In fact, I was occasionally so thick-headed that Tempe was forced to explain himself several times in several different ways. All in a Turin, of course. We finished setting up camp around noon. Martin left to go hunting, and Tempe stretched and began to move through his slow dance. He did it twice in a row, and I began to suspect he was somewhat bored himself. By the time he finished, he was covered in a sheen of sweat and told me he was going to bathe. With the camp to myself, I melted down the tinker's candles to make two small wax simulacra. I'd been wanting to do this for days, but even at the university, creating a moment was questionable behavior. Here in Vintus, suffice to say, I thought it best to be discreet. It wasn't elegant work. Tallow isn't nearly as convenient as sympathy wax, but even the crudest moment can be a devastating thing. Once I had them tucked into my travel sack, I felt much better prepared. I was cleaning the last of the tallow off my fingers when Tempe returned from his bath, naked as a new baby. Years of stage training allowed me to keep a calm expression, but just barely. After spreading his wet clothing over a nearby branch to dry, Tempe walked over to me without showing the least embarrassment or modesty. He held out his right hand, thumb and forefinger pinched together. What is this? He spread his fingers slightly for me to see. I looked closely, glad to have something to focus my attention on. That's a tick. This close, I couldn't help but notice his scars again, faint lines crossing his arms and chest. I could read scars from my time in the Medica, and his didn't show the wide, puckered pink that would indicate a deep wound cutting through the layers of skin, fat, and muscle underneath. These were shallow wounds, dozens of them. I couldn't help but wonder how long he had been a mercenary to have scars so old. He didn't look much older than twenty. Oblivious to my scrutiny, Tempe stared at the thing between his fingers. "'Eat bites. On me. Bites and stays.' His expression was blank as always, but his tone was tinged with disgust. His left hand fidgeted. There are no ticks in Edemre? No. He made a point of trying to pinch it between his fingers. Eat not break. I gestured, showing him how to crush it between his fingernails, which he did with a certain amount of relish. He threw it away and stalked back to his bedroll, then, still naked, he proceeded to pull out all his clothing and give it a vigorous shaking. I kept my eyes averted, knowing deep down in my heart that this would be the moment Dedan and Hespa would return from Crossin. Thankfully, they didn't. After a quarter hour or so, Tempe put on a pair of dry pants, carefully inspecting them first. Shirtless, he walked back to where I sat. I hate pig, he declared. When he spoke, his left hand made a sharp gesture as if he were brushing crumbs off the front of his shirt near his hip. Except he wasn't wearing a shirt and there was nothing on his bare skin to brush away. What's more, I realized he'd made the same gesture earlier. In fact, now that I thought of it, I'd seen him make that gesture a half dozen times in the last several days, though never so violently. I had a sudden suspicion. Tempe, What does this mean? I mimicked the brushing-away gesture. He nodded. It is this. He scrunched his face up in an exaggerated expression of disgust. My mind went spinning back over the last span of days, thinking of how many times I had seen Tempe fidgeting restlessly while we talked. I reeled at the thought of it. Tempe, I asked, is all of this— I made a gesture to my face, then smiled, frowned, rolled my eyes. Does all this happen with hands in a demic? He nodded and made a gesture at the same time. That. I pointed at his hand. What is that? He hesitated, then gave a forced, awkward-looking smile. I copied the gesture, splaying my hand slightly and pressing my thumb to the inside of my middle finger. No he said. Other hand. Left. Why? He reached out and thumped on my chest, just left of the breastbone. tum tump tum tump, tump Then he ran a finger down to my left hand. I nodded to show I understood. It was closest to the heart. He held up his right hand and made a fist. This hand is strong. He held up his left. This hand is clever. It made sense. That is why most lutists chord with the left hand and strum with their right. The left hand is more nimble as a rule. I made the gesture with my left hand, fingers splayed. Tempe shook his head. That is this. He quirked half of his mouth up into a smirk. The expression seemed so out of place on his face that it was all I could do to keep from gawking. I looked more closely at his hand and adjusted the position of my fingers slightly. He nodded approval. His face was expressionless, but for the first time I understood why. In the hours that followed, I learned that edemic hand gestures did not actually represent facial expressions. It was nothing so simple as that. For example, a smile can mean you're amused, happy, grateful, or satisfied. You can smile to comfort someone. You can smile because you're content or because you're in love. A grimace or a grin looks similar to a smile, but they mean entirely different things. Imagine trying to teach someone how to smile. Imagine trying to describe what different smiles mean and when precisely to use them in conversation. It's harder than learning to walk. Suddenly, so many things made sense. Of course Tempe wouldn't look me in the eye. There was nothing to be gained by looking at the face of the person you were talking to. You listen to the voice, but you watch the hand. I spent the next several hours attempting to learn the basics, but it was maddeningly difficult. Words are fairly simple things. You can point to a stone. You can act out running or jumping. But have you ever tried to pantomime compliance? Respect? Sarcasm? I doubt even my father could have accomplished such a thing. Because of this, my progress was frustratingly slow, but I couldn't help but be fascinated. It was like suddenly being given a second tongue. And it was a secret thing of sorts. I have always had a weakness for secrets. It took three hours to learn a handful of gestures, if you'll pardon the pun. My progress felt glacial, but when I finally learned the handspeak for understatement, I felt a glow of pride that can barely be described. I think Tempe felt it, too. Good, he said, with a flattening of the hand I was fairly certain indicated approval. He rolled his shoulders and got to his feet, stretching. He glanced at the sun through the branches overhead. Food now? Soon. There was one question that had been bothering me. Tempe, why make all this work? I asked. A smile is easy. Why smile with your hands? With hands is easy, too. Better. More— He made a slightly modified version of the shirt-brushing gesture he'd used earlier. Not disgust. Irritation? What is the word for people living together? Roads. Right things. He ran his thumb along his collarbone. Was that frustration? What is word for good together living? Nobody shits in the well. I laughed. Civilization? He nodded, splaying his fingers. Amusement. Yes, he said. Speaking with hands is civilization. But smiling is natural, I protested. Everyone smiles. Natural is not civilization, Tempe said. Cooking meat is civilization. Washing off stink is civilization. So in Edemre you always smile with hands? I wished I knew the gesture for dismay. No. Smiling with face good with family. Good with some friend— Why only family? Tempe repeated his thumb on collarbone gesture again. Then you make this— He pressed his palm to the side of his face and blew air into it, making a great flatulent noise. That is natural, but you do not make it near others. Rude. With family— He shrugged. Amusement civilization not important, more natural with family. What about laughing? I asked. I have seen you laugh. I made a ha-ha sound so he knew what I was talking about. He shrugged. Laughing is— I waited for a moment, but he didn't seem inclined to continue. I tried again. Why not laugh with hands? Tempe shook his head. No. Laugh is different. He stepped close and used two fingers to tap my chest over my heart. Smile. He ran his finger down my left arm. Angry. He tapped my heart again. He made a scared expression, a confused one, and poked his lip out in a ridiculous pout. Each time he tapped my chest. But laugh— he pressed the flat of his hand against my stomach. Here lives laugh. He ran his finger straight up to my mouth and spread his fingers. Push back laugh is not good, not healthy. Also cry? I asked. I traced an imaginary tear down my cheek with one finger. Also cry? He put his hand on his own belly. Ha ha ha! he said pressing in with his hand to show me the motion of his stomach. Then, his expression changed to sad. Ho, ho, ho. He heaved with exaggerated sobs, pressing his stomach again. Same place. Not healthy to push down. I nodded slowly, trying to imagine what it must be like for Tempe, constantly assaulted by people too rude to keep their expressions to themselves. People whose hands constantly made gestures that were nonsense. It must be very hard for you out here. Not so hard, understatement. Then I leave Ademre. I know this. Not civilization. Barbarians are rude. Barbarians? He made a wide gesture encompassing our clearing, the forest, all of Ventus. Everyone here like dogs made a grotesquely exaggerated expression of rage, showing all his teeth, snarling and rolling his eyes madly. "'That is all you know,' he shrugged, nonchalant acceptance, as if to say he didn't hold it against us. "'What of children?' I asked. "'Children smile before they talk. Is that wrong?' Tempe shook his head. "'All children barbarians.' All smile with face, all children rude, but they go old, watch, learn. He paused thoughtfully, choosing his words. Barbarians have no woman to teach them civilization. Barbarians cannot learn. I could tell he didn't mean any offense— but it made me more determined than ever to learn the particulars of the Adem hand talk. Tempe stood and began limbering up with a number of stretches similar to those the tumblers used in my troop when I was young. After fifteen minutes of twisting himself this way and that, he began his slow, dance-like pantomime. Though I didn't know it at the time, it was called the Catan. Still nettled about Tempe's barbarians-cannot-learn comment, I decided I would follow along. After all, I didn't have anything better to do. As I tried to mimic him, I became aware of how devilishly complex it was. Keeping the hands cupped just so, the feet correctly positioned. Despite the fact that Tempe moved with almost glacial slowness, I found it impossible to imitate his smooth grace. Tempe never paused or looked in my direction. He never offered a word of encouragement or advice. It was exhausting, and I was glad when it was over. Then I started the fire and lashed together a tripod. Wordlessly, Tempe brought out a hard sausage and several potatoes that he began to peel carefully using his sword. I was surprised by this, as Tempe fussed over his sword much the same way I did with my lute. Once, when Dadan had picked it up, the Adem had responded with a rather dramatic emotional outburst. Dramatic for Tempe, that is. He'd spoken two full sentences and frowned a bit. Tempe saw me watching him and cocked his head curiously. I pointed. Sword? I asked. For cutting potatoes? Tempe looked down at the half-peeled potato in one hand, his sword in the other. He's sharp. He shrugged. He's clean. I returned the shrug, not wanting to make an issue of it. While working together, I learned the words for iron, knot, leaf, spark, and salt. Waiting for the water to boil, Tempe stood, shook himself, and began his limbering stretches a second time. I followed him again. It was harder this time. The muscles of my arms and legs were loose and shaky from my previous effort. Toward the end, I had to fight to keep myself from trembling, but I gleaned a few more secrets. Tempe continued to ignore me, but I didn't mind. I've always been drawn to a challenge. Chapter 83 Lack of Sight So Taberlin was prisoned deep underground, Martin said. They had left him with nothing but the clothes upon his back and an inch of guttering candle to push away the darkness the Sorcerer King planned to leave Taberlin trapped until hunger and thirst weakened his will. Cyphus knew if Taberlin swore to help him, the wizard would abide by his promise because Taberlin never broke his word. Worst of all, Cyphus had taken Taberlin's staff and sword, and without them, his power was all dim and guttery. He'd even taken Taberlin's cloak of no particular color, but he- Sorry, but- Uh, um. Hespa, would you be a darling and pass me the skin? Hespa tossed Martin the water skin and he took a deep drink. That's better. He cleared his throat. Where was I again? We had been in the Eld for twelve days and things had fallen into a steady rhythm. Martin had changed our standing wager to reflect our growing skill first to ten to one, then fifteen to one, which was the same arrangement he had with Daidan and Hespa. My understanding of the Adam hand language was growing, and, as a result, Tempe was becoming something other than a frustrating blank page of a man. As I learned to read his body language, he was slowly being colored in around the edges. He was thoughtful and gentle. Daidan rubbed him the wrong way. He loved jokes, though many of mine fell flat and the ones he tried to tell invariably made no sense in translation. This isn't to say things were perfect between us. I still offended Tempe occasionally, making social gaffes I couldn't understand even after the fact. Every day I continued to follow him in his strange dance and every day he pointedly ignored me. Now, Tabalin needed to escape. "'Martin said, continuing his story. "'But when he looked around his cave, he saw no door, no window. "'All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. "'But Taberlin the Great knew the names of all things, "'so all things were his to command. "'He said to the stone, Break, and the stone broke. "'The wall tore like a piece of paper, "'and through that hole Taberlin could see the sky— and breathe the sweet spring air. Taberlin made his way out of the caves, into the castle, and finally to the doors of the royal hall itself. The doors were barred against him, so he said, Burn, and they burst into flame and were soon nothing more than fine gray ash. Taberlin stepped into the hall and saw King Ciphers sitting there with fifty guards. The king said, Capture him! but the guards had just seen the doors burn to ash, so they moved closer, but none of them came too close, if you know what I mean. King Cyphus said, Cowards! I will battle Tabalin with wizardry and best him. He was afraid of Tabalin, too, but he hid it well. Besides, Cyphus had his staff, and Tabalin had none. Then Tabalin said, If you're so brave, give me my staff before we duel certainly cyphus said even though he didn't really mean to give it back you see it's right next to you in that chest there martin looked around at us conspiratorially you see cyphus knew the chest was locked and had only one key and that key was right in his pocket so Taberlin went over to the chest but it was locked then cyphus laughed and so did a few of the guards that made Taberlin angry, and before any of them could do anything, he struck the top of the chest with his hand and shouted, Edro! The chest sprung open and he grabbed his cloak of no particular color, wrapping it around himself. Martin cleared his throat again. Excuse me, he said, and paused to take another long drink. Hespa turned to Dadan. What color do you think Taberlin's cloak was? Daydan's forehead creased a bit, almost like the beginning of a scowl. What do you mean? It's no particular color, just like it says. Hesper's mouth went flat. I know that. But when you think of it in your head, what does it look like? You have to picture it as looking like something, don't you? Daydan looked thoughtful for a moment. I always pictured it as kind of shimmery he said, like the cobblestones outside a tallow works after a hard rain. I always thought of it as a dirty gray, she said, sort of washed out from his being on the road all the time. That makes good sense, Daydan said, and I watched Hesper's face go gentle again. White, Tempe volunteered. I think white, no color. I always thought of it as a kind of pale sky blue, Martin admitted, shrugging. I know that doesn't make any sense. That's just how I picture it. Everyone turned to look at me. Sometimes I think of it like a quilt, I said, made entirely out of patchwork, a bunch of different colored rags and scraps. But most of the time, I think of it as dark, like it really is a color, but it's too dark for anyone to see. When I was younger, stories of Taberlin had left me wide-eyed with wonder. Now that I knew the truth about magic, I enjoyed them on a different level, somewhere between nostalgia and amusement. But I held a special place in my heart for Taberlin's cloak of no particular color. His staff held much of his power. His sword was deadly. His key, coin, and candle were valuable tools, but the cloak Was at the heart of Taberlin. It was a disguise when he needed it, helped him hide when he was in trouble. It protected him from rain, from arrows, from fire. He could hide things in it, and it had many pockets full of wonderful things a knife, a toy for a child, a flower for a lady. Whatever Taberlin needed was somewhere in his cloak of no particular color. These stories are what made me beg my mother for my first cloak when I was young. I drew my own cloak around me, my nasty, tatty, faded cloak the tinker had traded me. On one of our trips into Crosson for supplies, I'd picked up some spare cloth and sewn a few clumsy pockets into the inside. But it was still a poor replacement for my rich burgundy cloak, or the lovely black and green one Fella had made for me. Martin cleared his throat again and launched back into his story. "'So—' Taberlin struck the trunk with his hand and shouted, Edro The lid of the chest popped open, and he grabbed his cloak of no particular color and his staff. He called forth great barbs of lightning and killed twenty guards. Then he called forth a sheet of fire and killed another twenty. Those that were left threw down their swords and cried for mercy. Then Taberlin gathered up the rest of his things from the chest he took out his key and coin and tucked them safe away. Lastly, he brought out his copper sword, Skjaldron, and belted- What? Daydan interrupted, laughing. You tit! Sabaline's sword wasn't copper. Shut up, Den. Martin snapped, nettled at the interruption. It was so copper. You shut up, Daydan replied. "'Who's ever heard of a copper sword? Copper wouldn't hold an edge. It'd be like trying to kill someone with a big penny.' Hesper laughed at that. "'It was probably a silver sword, don't you think, Martin?' "'It was a copper sword,' Martin insisted. "'Maybe it was early on in his career,' Daydan said in a loud whisper to Hesper. "'All he could afford was a copper sword.' Martin shot the two of them an angry look. Copper, damn you. If you don't like it, you can just guess at the ending. He folded his arms in front of himself. Fine, Daydan said. Cloth can give us one. He might be a pup, but he knows how to tell a proper story. Copper sword my ass. Actually, I said, I'd like to hear the end of Martin's. Oh, go ahead, the old tracker said bitterly. I'm in no mood to finish now. And I'd rather listen to you than hear that donkey hee yaw his way through one of his. Nightly stories had been one of the few times we could sit as a group without falling into petty bickering. Now, even they were becoming tense. What's more, the others were beginning to count on me for the evening's entertainment— Hoping to put an end to the trend, I'd put a lot of thought into what story I was going to tell tonight. Once upon a time, I began, there was a little boy born in a little town. He was perfect, or so his mother thought. But one thing was different about him. He had a gold screw in his belly button, just the head of it peeping out. Now, his mother was simply glad he had all his fingers and toes to count with but as the boy grew up, he realized not everyone had screws in their belly buttons, let alone gold ones. He asked his mother what it was for, but she didn't know. Next, he asked his father, but his father didn't know. He asked his grandparents, but they didn't know either. That settled it for a while, but it kept nagging him. Finally, when he was old enough, he packed a bag and set out, hoping he could find someone who knew the truth of it. He went from place to place, asking everyone who claimed to know something about anything. He asked midwives and physicers, but they couldn't make heads or tails of it. The boy asked arcanists, tinkers, and old hermits living in the woods, but no one had ever seen anything like it. He went to ask the sealed merchants, thinking if anyone would know about gold, it would be them. But the sealed merchants didn't know. He went to the arcanists at the university thinking if anyone would know about screws and their workings, they would. But the arcanists didn't know. The boy followed the road over the stormwall to ask the witch women of the Tal, but none of them could give him an answer. Eventually, he went to the king of Vint, the richest king in the world. But the king didn't know. He went to the emperor of Ator, but even with all his power, the emperor didn't know. He went to each of the small kingdoms one by one, but no one could tell him anything. Finally, the boy went to the High King of Modeg, the wisest of all the kings in the world. The High King looked closely at the head of the golden screw peeping from the boy's belly button. Then the High King made a gesture and his seneschal brought out a pillow of golden silk. On that pillow was a golden box. The High King took a golden key from around his neck, opened the box, and inside was a golden screwdriver. The High King took the screwdriver and motioned the boy to come closer. Trembling with excitement, the boy did. Then the High King took the golden screwdriver and put it in the boy's belly button. I paused to take a long drink of water. I could feel my small audience leaning toward me. Then... The High King carefully turned the golden screw. Once, nothing. Twice, nothing. Then he turned it the third time and the boy's ass fell off. There was a moment of stunned silence. What? Hespa asked incredulously. His ass fell off, I repeated with an absolutely straight face. There was a long silence. Everyone's eyes were fixed on me. The fire snapped, sending a red ember floating upward. And then what happened? Espa finally asked. Nothing, I said. That's it. The end. What? She said again, more loudly. What kind of story is that? I was about to respond when Tempe burst out laughing, and he kept laughing. Great shaking laughs that left him breathless. Soon, I began to laugh as well, partly at Tempe's display and partly because I'd always considered it an oddly funny story myself. Hespa's expression turned dangerous, as if she were the butt of the joke. Daydan was the first to speak. I don't understand. Why did— He trailed off. Did they get the boy's ass back on? Hespa interjected. I shrugged. That's not part of the story. Daydan gestured wildly, his expression frustrated. What's the point of it? I put on an innocent face. I thought we were just telling stories. The big man scowled at me. Sensible stories. Stories with endings. Not stories that just have a boy's ass- he shook his head. This is ridiculous. I'm going to sleep. He moved off to make his bed. Hespa stalked off in her own direction. I smiled reasonably sure neither one of them would be troubling me for any more stories than I cared to tell. Tempe got to his feet as well. Then, as he walked past me, he smiled and gave me a sudden hug. A span of days ago, this would have shocked me but now I knew that physical contact was not particularly odd among the Adem. Still, I was surprised he did it in front of the others. I returned his hug as best I could, feeling his chest still shaking with laughter. He's ass off, he said quietly, then made his way to bed. Martin's eyes followed Tempe, then he gave me a long, speculative look. Where did you hear that one? he asked. My father told it to me when I was young, I said honestly. Odd story to tell a child. I was an odd child, I said. When I was older, he confessed he made the stories up to keep me quiet. I used to pepper him with questions. Hour after hour, he said the only thing that would keep me quiet was some sort of puzzle. But I cracked riddles like walnuts, and he ran out of those. I shrugged and started to lay out my bed. So he made up stories that seemed like puzzles and asked me if I understood what they meant. I smiled a little wistfully. I remember thinking about that boy with the screw in his belly button for days and days, trying to find the sense in it. Martin frowned. That's a cruel trick to play on a boy. The comment surprised me. What do you mean? Tricking you just to get a little peace and quiet? It's a shabby thing to do. I was taken aback. It wasn't done in meanness. I enjoyed it. It gave me something to think about. But it was pointless. Impossible. Not pointless, I protested. It's the questions we can't answer that teach us the most. They teach us how to think. If you give a man an answer, all he gains is a little fact. But give him a question— and he'll look for his own answers. I spread my blanket on the ground and folded over the threadbare tinker's cloak to wrap myself in. That way, when he finds the answers, they'll be precious to him. The harder the question, the harder we hunt. The harder we hunt, the more we learn. An impossible question... I trailed off as realization burst onto me. Elodin. That is what Elodin had been doing. Everything he'd done in his class—the games, the hints, the cryptic riddling—they were all questions of a sort. Martin shook his head and wandered off, but I was lost in my thoughts and hardly noticed. I had wanted answers, and in spite of all I had thought, Elodin had been trying to give them to me. What I had taken as a malicious crypticism on his part was actually a persistent urging toward the truth. I sat there, silent and stunned by the scope of his instruction. By my lack of understanding. My lack of sight. Chapter 84 The Edge of the Map We continued to inch our way through the eld. Every day began with the hope of finding traces of a trail. Every night ended with disappointment. The shine was definitely off the apple and our group was slowly being overtaken by irritation and backbiting. Any fear Daydan once felt for me had worn paper thin, and he pushed at me constantly. He wanted to buy a bottle of brand using the mayor's purse. I refused. He thought we didn't need to keep nightly watches, merely set up a trip line. I disagreed. Every small battle I won made him resent me more, and his low grumbling steadily increased as our search wore on. It was never anything so bold as a direct confrontation, just a sporadic peppering of snide comments and sulky insubordination. On the other hand, Tempe and I were slowly moving towards something like friendship. His aeturin was becoming better, and my Ademic had progressed to the point where I could actually be considered inarticulate as opposed to just confusing. I continued to mimic Tempe as he performed his dance, and he continued to ignore me. Now that I'd been doing it for a while, I recognized a hint of martial flavor to it. A slow motion with one arm gave the impression of a punch. A glacial raising of the foot resembled a kick. My arms and legs no longer shook from the effort of moving slowly along with him, but I was still irritated by how clumsy I was. I hate nothing so much as doing a thing badly. For example— There was a portion halfway through that looked easy as breathing. Tempe turned, circled his arms, and took a small step. But whenever I tried to do the same, I inevitably found myself stumbling. I had tried a half-dozen different ways of placing my feet, but nothing made any difference. But the day after I told my loose screw story, as Daydan eventually came to refer to it, Tempe stopped ignoring me. This time, after I stumbled, he stopped and faced me. His fingers flicked. Disapproval. Irritation. Go back, he said, settling into the dance position that came before my stumble. I went into the same position and tried to mimic him. I lost my balance again and had to shuffle my feet to keep from stumbling. My feet are stupid, I muttered in a demic, curling the fingers on my left hand. Embarrassment. No- Tempi grabbed my hips in his hands and twisted them. Then he pushed my shoulders back and slapped at my knee, making me bend it. Yes. I tried moving forward again and felt the difference. I still lost my balance, but only a little. No, he said again. Watch. He tapped his shoulder. This. He stood directly in front of me, barely a foot away, and repeated the motion. He turned his hands, made a circle to the side, and his shoulder pushed into my chest. It was the same motion you would make if you were trying to push open a door with your shoulder. Tempe wasn't moving very quickly, but his shoulder pushed me firmly aside. It wasn't rough or sudden, but the force of it was irresistible, like when a horse brushes up against you on a crowded street. I moved through it again, focusing on my shoulder. I didn't stumble. Since we were the only ones at the camp, I kept the smile from my face and gestured, "'Happiness.'" "'Thank you. Understatement.'" Tempe said nothing. His face was blank, his hands still. He merely went back to where he had stood before and began his dance again from the beginning, facing away from me. I tried to remain stoic about the exchange, but I took this as a great compliment had I known more about the ADEM, I would have realized it was far more than that. Tempe and I came over a rise to find Martin waiting for us. It was too early for lunch, so hope rose in my chest as I thought that finally, after all these long days of searching, he might have caught the bandit's trail. I wanted to show you this, Martin said, gesturing to a tall, sprawling, fern-like plant that stood a dozen feet away. A bit of a rare thing. Been years since I've seen one. What is it? It's called Anne's Blade, he said proudly, looking it over. You'll need to keep an eye out. Not many folk know about them, so it might give us a clue if there are any more of them about. Martin looked back and forth between us eagerly. Well, he said at last. What's so special about it? I asked dutifully. Martin smiled. The An's blade is interesting because it can't tolerate folk, he said. If any part of it touches your skin, it'll turn red as fall leaves in a couple hours. Redder than that. Bright as your mercenary reds, Martin gestured to Tempe, and then the whole plant will dry up and die. Really? I asked, no longer having to feign interest. Martin nodded. A drop of sweat will kill it just the same, which means, most times, it will die just from touching a person's clothes, armor, too, or a stick you've been holding, or a sword. He gestured to Tempe's hip. Some people say it will die if you so much as breathe on it, Martin said. But I don't know if that's the truth. Martin turned to lead us away from the Anne's Blade. This is an old, old piece of forest. You don't see the blade anywhere near where folk have settled. We're off the edge of the map here. We're hardly on the edge of the map, I said. We know exactly where we are. Martin snorted. Maps don't just have outside edges. They have inside edges. Holes. Folk like to pretend they know everything about the world. Rich folk especially. Maps are great for that. On this side of the line is Baron Tax-Twice's field. On that side is Count Uptimony's land. Martin spat. You can't have blanks on your maps, so the folks who draw them shade in a piece and write The Eld. He shook his head. You might as well burn a hole right through the map for what good that does. This forest is big as Vintus. Nobody owns it. You head off in the wrong direction in here, you'll walk a hundred miles and never see a road, let alone a house or a plowed field. There are places around here that have never felt the press of a man's foot or heard the sound of his voice. I looked around. It looks the same as most other forests I've seen. A wolf looks like a dog, Martin said simply, but it's not. A dog is—he paused. He paused. What's that word for animals that are around people all the time? Cows and sheep and such. Domesticated? That's it, he said looking around. A farm is domesticated. A garden. A park. Most forests too. Folk hunt mushrooms, or cut firewood, or take their sweethearts for a little rub and cuddle. He shook his head and reached out to touch the rough bark of a nearby tree. The gesture was oddly gentle almost loving. Not this place. This place is old and wild. It doesn't care one thin sliver of a damn about us. If these folk we're hunting get the jump on us, they won't even have to bury our bodies. We'll lie on the ground for a hundred years and no one will come close to stumbling on our bones. I turned where I stood, looking at the rise and fall of the land. The worn rocks— The endless ranks of trees. I tried not to think about how the mayor had sent me here, like moving a stone on a tack board. He had sent me to a hole in the map, a place where no one would ever find my bones. Chapter 85 Interlude Fences Quoth sat upright in his seat, craning his neck to get a better look out the window. He was just holding his hand up to Chronicler when they heard a quick, light tapping on the wooden landing outside. Too fast and soft to be the heavy boots of farmers, it was followed by a high peal of childish laughter. Chronicler quickly blotted the page he was writing, then tucked it under a stack of blank paper as Quoth got to his feet and walked toward the bar. Bast leaned back, tipping his chair onto two legs. After a moment— The door opened and a young man with broad shoulders and a thin beard stepped into the inn, carefully ushering a little blonde girl through the doorway ahead of him. Behind him, a young woman carried a baby boy sitting on her arm.